0: heard it said that the gospel, the word of God, comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. It has a kind of dual function or dual purpose, both to comfort and to challenge and disturb. And I think that's true. And I think it's illustrated by this text tonight. In general terms, of course, the gospel is profoundly and supremely comforting and reassuring and encouraging. It is, after all, good news. Central in the gospel is the truth that our need, our need for saving, our need for deliverance, our need for rescue, our need for salvation, that need has been met totally and completely In Jesus Christ crucified and risen. All that's needful for us has been done. And we are saved from sin and death and guilt. And we can have peace with God. He welcomes us. We are reconciled to him. He opens his arms to greet us and draw us into himself. And he treats each one of us with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And all that is a gift. It's all of grace, and it is through faith. And that must be the supremely comforting news of the Gospel. We have peace with God. As we have peace with God, we can have peace with one another. I was speaking this week to someone who's just come back from Korea, where they've been at a conference, and they were very impressed with a Pentecostal speaker who spoke about the threefold nature of salvation. First of all, the individual is saved. Secondly, the community can be saved. And then thirdly, the earth can be saved. An interesting trinity for Trinity Sunday. So, supremely, the gospel is comforting. Let me offer you this. Do you know the most common command in the Bible? You might say, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. One another, of course, love is a central command in the Gospels and in Scripture. But the most common command is don't be afraid, fear not, don't be anxious, don't be frightened. And I think we all need to hear that, and that is wonderfully comforting. But our passage tonight is not comforting. I personally find it profoundly disturbing discomforting, challenging. So we can see here that the gospel does comfort the disturbed, but it disturbs the comfortable. We can be disturbed in our comfort, in our complacency. We can be disturbed in our self-righteousness. And we need to hear both of these messages. Now there are two passages tonight, as you can see at the end of uh, this chapter of Mark. One is Uh, dealing with Jesus' judgment on the religious leaders, and the second is an incident that takes place in the temple that points to the faithfulness and the devotion of a poor widow. And I want to take each in turn, but before I come to that, just let me set a little bit uh, of the passage in, in context. We've been looking at Mark's Gospel for these past Sunday evenings. It's the Shortest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's by far the shortest. Some scholars have concluded that because it's the shortest, it must have been written first. Interesting uh, debate around that particular point, and I'll leave it to you to come to your own conclusion. But it's certainly a very good Gospel to start with if you're coming to explore the Scriptures, if you're coming to explore the Christian faith. Mark is a very good place to start It's a very exciting gospel. It's a very dramatic gospel. It has a sense of pace, of immediacy, of challenge, of dynamism. And it centers on this question that we've been looking at across the Sunday evenings. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus that we're called to follow, called to know? What is his significance? What's his importance? And Mark sets out, to answer that question. I've found it quite helpful over the years to reflect that when we think of the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you might want to think of them as the biographies of Jesus. They start with his birth, they go into his ministry for the years of his ministry, and they end at the end of his life with his death and resurrection. Kind of biographies or life stories of Jesus, and indeed they are. But a better way to look on the Gospels, that they're actually commentaries on the man who was crucified and risen. If you take John's Gospel, for instance, half of the Gospel, virtually half of the Gospel, is on his passion and death and resurrection. It's as if the Gospel writers are really seeking to explain who it was who was crucified, who it was who was raised to life, who it was who has ascended into heaven. And that's the great question that Mark asks and the great question that he seeks to answer. And we've come towards the very end of the, uh, of the story, as it were. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. He's entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the great uh, Old Testament sign of kingship. He's come into the last days of his life before his crucifixion on Good Friday, and he enters into a series of debates with the religious authorities and with his uh, disciples. Debates in which they try to test him or trick him or catch him out. A very interesting series of questions that the Gospel writers record in these last days of Jesus' life. And as Daniel pointed out wonderfully last Sunday evening, Jesus somehow rises above these questions. He he handles the questions in such a way with his answers that points to a remarkable wisdom and authority and divine character in him. And so we come to these two little uh, passages tonight. The first of them really effectively is the last uh, of Jesus' public ministry as recorded in uh, Mark, and then the incident uh, with the poor widow uh, is in the context of his disciples uh, alone. And I want to take each one in turn. And I want really to say that the first is a, a judgment on the religious leaders and on false righteousness. Let's take it from halfway through verse 37. The large crowd listened to him with delight As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. A large crowd was listening with delight to Jesus. And that's one of the themes that runs Throughout the Gospels, the ordinary people, the common people, the people in the crowds heard Jesus with delight and with great pleasure. And that's a comfort to me as I think of how the ordinary people warmed to Jesus and were drawn to Jesus and loved to listen to him and watch him and be with him. And that's a theme that runs uh, throughout the Gospels, as I say, and we pick it up here. The large crowd that listened to him, listened to him with delight. And with pleasure. And Jesus goes on to tell them this this teaching. Watch out for the teachers of the law. These are the religious leaders. The scribes, the Pharisees. The experts in the law. The teachers in the law. And Jesus attacks them and criticizes them for their hypocrisy. They were the experts on scripture. They were the teachers of scripture. They knew scripture better than anyone else. Other people looked to them for the interpretation of scripture. They were, if you like, the conservatives, perhaps even the evangelicals, perhaps even the fundamentalists. And yet, here they are the object of Jesus' most strict and outspoken judgment. And the picture he paints of them is really a picture of hypocrisy. They walked around in their flowing robes, I'm told by the commentators that very often the rabbis, the teachers of the law in those days, wore robes of white to distinguish them from others. And they loved to be greeted in the marketplaces with names of of honor and respect and deference. And when they came to the synagogues, then they expected to have the seats of honor right at the front of the congregation. I remember visiting a synagogue in Edinburgh some years ago uh, one visit that I've made to a synagogue, and it was very interesting, and it follows very much the pattern of the synagogues across the centuries indeed. In the center, you have a, a table, effectively, with the uh, scrolls and the books on it, uh, the books of the law, the first five books of the Bible. And in front, there are a number of seats. And if um, there are honored people in the congregation, they are invited to come up and sit in these honored seats before the congregation, and uh, just by the sacred texts. These teachers of the law loved the seats of honor and respect and and deference in in the synagogues. And if they went to a banquet, if they went to a feast, they expected to sit at the top table, at the high table. That's what they expected, because their life was really a life of ostentation. They were somewhat pompous. They were concerned for their own prominence, their own position of honor and respect and deference, as I say. And more than that... They clearly exploited those who were supporting them financially. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Not a very attractive uh, picture. It's outward show. It's pretense. It's hypocrisy. It's a concern for prominence. It's a concern to win honor and deference and respect. And such men says Jesus, will be punished most severely. I find it very disturbing and very challenging as someone who spent a a lot of my life in uh, Christian leadership. What does this say about the leaders? And I think it does have something to say to us as leaders, whether we are pastors or elders or deacons or office bearers, or we hold some position in the congregation, some position of office, or involved in some organization, it's very easy to take that status, and uh, we're tempted to take that status as a basis for which we can boast, or a basis on which we can exercise influence, we can put ourselves forward as prominent people within a church and within a congregation, we can enjoy the kind of deference and honor and respect that often comes to Christian leaders, and it's severely tempting and I have to say I find it and I've always found this text severely discomforting. Maybe that it's more applicable to some parts of the church than others. Some denominations maybe are more prone to this than others. I I don't know. What I do know is that in parts of Asia that are, um, we've had a little experience of in say India or Pakistan status in the church is enormously important. Indeed in Eastern culture status is very, very important, as I'm sure you know, and people go to huge lengths in the church to obtain some kind of office, some kind of position, some kind of authority, because of the influence that it will give them and the, and the honour that will come to them. I'm not sure we're quite as sensitive to that in the West, but it's certainly very marked in the East. I heard a report on the radio this week of church leaders in Ghana, in Africa, some of whom have become extremely wealthy, by exploiting the uh, people who are are there to support them uh, and to encourage them. So it is a temptation. And one that I think goes further than just simply religious leaders. I think it comes to ordinary Christians and we can ask ourselves, do we, in our Christian faith and in our Christian life and practice, do we draw attention to ourselves in any way or are we really pointing in all humility to our Saviour, to our Lord and our Master. But I think this is a, a real warning that deserves to be taken with real seriousness. It's summarised very well in the commentary by Alan Cole in the Tyndale New Testament series, and he says this, To us, scribes and Pharisees have become a symbol of hypocrisy. They liked all the notoriety and outward honor that their unquestioned intellectual mastery of Scripture brought to them. They were nothing if not biblical expositors and commentators, and devoted to the the text as few others have been. They were conservative to the hilt, nay, positively fundamentalist in their approach to the Bible as they had it. But the simple Christian man is warned against them. Had they rejected the authority of Scripture, their conduct would have been explicable as it was they were left without excuse. For those today who accept the Bible as a rule of faith and conduct, there is no excuse for disobedience. False righteousness, hypocrisy, ostentation, pomposity, outward show, perhaps something that we're all prone to and tempted to and need to watch out against. Let's look at the second passage now, by sharp contrast, not so much a false righteousness, but rather true devotion in the incident about the widow and her offering. Jesus is with his disciples alone, and he's sat down near the temple treasury. We're told by the commentators that uh, this would have been near the gate beautiful at that point of the temple where the court of the Gentiles gave way to the court of the women, and by the gate there were 13 trumpets, 13 large containers with kind of wide mouths into which uh, the worshippers would place their offerings as they came into the temple, and these 13 trumpets were gathered together at the gate, and Jesus clearly was seated by the gate, and he was watching the worshippers arriving and putting in their offerings. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put in and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. I don't know that Jesus uh, does anything other than approve of this. Uh, Clearly the temple needed money, the church needs money. If the Irving project goes ahead, it will need money, it will need the generosity of wealthy people. There's nothing wrong with people putting in generously of their wealth. That's not the point that has caught Jesus' attention here. But a widow, verse 42, a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Clearly there was something about this, perhaps unexpected, perhaps surprising, that caught Jesus' attention. And he calls his disciples over to them. And he points out what has happened. It's a kind of acted parable. You know the parables that Jesus uh, tells, but there are in Scripture a number of acted parables, incidents that take place that bring their own message. And this is surely one of them. It's a a wonderful parable. And Jesus calls his disciples over and points, points out the significance of it to them. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put into the treasury More than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she out of her poverty. Put in everything. All that she had to live on. And down the ages. This has been a great example of giving. The words from the authorised uh, translation. The widow's might. Has passed into our culture. And into our language. A model of devotion. And again, I am profoundly disturbed by this. I feel hugely challenged by this. Not just in the way I spend my money, but in the priorities that I have. It's a very disturbing passage. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Now, you might not agree with me here, but I don't think this is actually teaching about economics. We can push very hard on this. We can say if she gave away everything, then she'd have to depend on others. But I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making. I think the point that he is making is this. That this is an example of total commitment. Nothing is withheld. There are no conditions It's a complete faithfulness and complete devotion. A true righteousness on the part of this extremely poor widow. Jesus sees two things. He sees two very little coins. Very small coins. The smallest denomination, a fraction of a penny. That tells him that this is a very poor woman. A very poor widow. And she puts both in. She might have kept back one, but she puts both in. The commitment is absolutely total. And he's so taken with this and so struck with this that he calls his disciples over to point out to them what this poor widow has done. Can I draw just three very brief points from it? First, I think this is more than simple generosity. This is sacrifice. This is sacrifice. And we might ask ourselves, when we give, do we give generously or do we give sacrificially? And that's a very uncomfortable thought. There's so much in the Christian life that's costly. And there's so much in the Christian life that's demanding. And when it comes to our money, or perhaps our time, or our resources or whatever we have under our disposal, the thought that we are to be more than generous to the point of sacrifice is one that makes us feel uncomfortable. I had a dear colleague in Scotland, wonderful man, great, uh, a great man who provoked his congregation into some criticism of him one Sunday morning when he told them that they should give to the church each year about the same amount as they were spending on their holidays. When does a contribution become a sacrifice? And that does seem to be one of the lessons that's here. This is sacrifice. And it asks sharp questions of us. Secondly, is there there not something reckless about this? Something uh, really extraordinary? There's there's nothing held back by by this giving. And perhaps that points to the exciting, the exhilarating nature. Of following Jesus Christ. It is costly, it is sacrificial, it is risky, but it is supremely worthwhile. And Jesus commends her for her devotion and for her commitment and for her righteousness. And then thirdly, isn't it odd that such a small quantity is so highly commended by Jesus? This is a supreme example of giving when what is given is so small and yet a sign of total commitment, complete devotion, true righteousness. And there's the contrast then between the passage before. The religious leaders condemned for their hypocrisy and their false righteousness and this poor widow. And interestingly, we were hearing a about another widow this morning, the widow of Zarephath. But this poor widow and her total commitment, her complete devotion, her utter trust in God. And so the gospel comforts the disturbed, as indeed it does, but it also disturbs the comfortable. And I feel both these passages are extremely disturbing. When we look at them and think about them and take them into our hearts. But I think also as we do that, they do point us to Jesus. They point us to Jesus in whom alone is true comfort and true peace. Amen.